0: Welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast and to celebrate the first anniversary of the podcast and the back of 2020, we're going to welcome the second half of our top 10 of our 2020 podcasts. Last week in numbers 10 to 6, we heard from the likes of educators, stress experts, entrepreneurs and ex-Special Forces soldiers. And for this top five this week, we're going to hear from another diverse set of individuals. Who's going to be number one? Keep listening to find out. Number five in our charts is Lloyd Banks, owner and managing director of Rubicon Recruitment Group. Lloyd has had a fascinating and incident-filled life, to say the least, and has some great stories to tell, from his time in the Metropolitan Police and working security for VIPs to his stint in the Royal Engineers and the back injury that changed the way he viewed himself and his role within his business. And what about that time he was given a Ferrari? I've known Lloyd for a very long time and what was surprising from this interview was that even after all of these years there were still things about Lloyd I didn't know and by the end of our chat he seemed to me to be a slightly different Lloyd than when we first started the conversation. See?
1: Reflection is good for us all. I looked after a particular guy who was a high net worth individual who was a South African. I won't I won't say his name or what his his business was, but he he had witnessed a, a double murder, and he was threatened constantly. So the the trial ended. I I actually drove him to the airport to Heathrow so that the the, the guys were convicted. Drove him in his car, which was a Ferrari. I can't right. remember genuinely what it was. And he, as he left, he gave me the car. <laughs> because but, but, uh, uh, I'd been looking after him for about three months okay. during that process. We got on very so well. So built
0: rapport, relationship, all of those yeah, things. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So he gave, gave me the car uh, and said, look, if you ever want a job, come out to South Africa. So, so money has never been my driver, no. I guess is what So I'm what saying.
0: does drive you? What was driving you then? Because that drive is still in you now to succeed.
1: I I suppose if the listeners are aware of Maslow's hierarchy of need, that right at the top of the pyramid is self-actualization, which is a fancy term for being as good as you can be. And whatever you do. uh, Whatever I do. So so the, the drive for me has been wanting to do the best I can do so with what I've got. So when you apply what, your mind what I've to got. when you yeah. find something, you yeah. just want to do whatever it. it is, be the best yeah. it can be at that. Okay? Yeah, right. yeah. No I matter, that. And particularly if people put put barriers or potential barriers or naysayers who yeah. say, oh, no, you can't do that because you're either too old or you can't do that because you're not fit enough or you can't do that because you're not bright enough.
0: One of the things that you are strong at, Lloyd, and you see it in rubicon it is that ability to communicate a vision so wh- how do you do that what's your what's your tips to the listeners on communicating a kind of sense of direction a sense of travel that vision yeah. to a team
1: okay so to start with it isn't easy yeah and and i i have several mantras and and and, and one is to sweat the small stuff yeah i think, i think people who don't are in danger of of never really building solid foundations. So the, the, what, what I mean in the sweat the small stuff is, is don't tolerate, be really nitpicky, the, the things that are important. So pay
0: attention to the detail.
1: Pay, te- pay attention to the detail. And I'm talking culturally here yeah, as well. So everything in terms of dress code to making sure things are clean and tidy. To It's funny, in the army, I was, I was never a ceremonial type. Soldier, you know, I never did any duties. I was a very hands-on yeah. soldier, as you as you can imagine. But um it, I, I I do remember somewhere that I was stationed for a while had a royal visit, and it was just suddenly everybody's out there painting curb stones, and and, <laughs> and it was it made me angry. Yeah, because you shouldn't you should always be at that level. Yeah. What why aren't you always, why at aren't your always at your best? You always at your best. So so that's something I. I drove through in business. I understand my limitations. I, I'm also firmly of the belief that you, you give a man a fish, you, you feed him for a day, you, you teach him to fish, you feed him for life. Yeah. So I, I can meet me going off and doing everything and, and having all the meetings with all the clients or prospecting and sales and Recruiting or resourcing and everything—I it, it, might be good at some of those things, but if I can help teach others to be at least as good as me, if not better, or even ninety percent as good as me, then we can we can achieve more.
0: One of the things I see in you, Lloyd, is uh, that I that I think is a strength that I think is a downfall of others is you're not a magpie. No. You don't see the next shiny thing and just no. the chase after it. You oh, no. have been very solid, quite razor focused. On oh, what you do
1: co- completely. No, and and, I, I, and I is think, that just yeah.
0: character or is that a determination to be focused?
1: It's, it's part of the way I'm. I think I said quite early on that that I'm I'm not a, I don't dwell in the past. So, yeah. so there's plenty of crap stuff that's happened in in my in my past, and and I genuinely, unless I am starkly reminded of something, I I can't even remember what happened two days ago genuinely well if 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 i was forced to think about what i did i i would think and and that's that's a shame in some ways but certainly anything negative is completely gone i just don't care coming in at number four is adam matton founder of
0: we move a dorset-based home removals company that has disrupted that sector with its very novel and fresh approach I first met Adam at the very launch of Evolve in early 2019 and was impressed by his open demeanour and enthusiasm for life and his business. He was then given a lift home by one of the Evolve team members and it wasn't long after that they recommended him as a guest for the podcast. he obviously made quite an impression on a short 20-minute journey. Adam's professional path began in the call centre at LB. And after eight years in the company, he had progressed to specialise in anti-bribery and corruption and was living a very comfortable life. However, for Adam, there's a big difference between comfortable and content. And realising he wasn't pursuing something he really loved, he dropped everything and went to China to teach English. As you'll hear, it was there, of all places, that his entrepreneurial spark truly took hold. He set up a recruitment business that later did fold. But Adam used his lessons he'd learned from that to start the removal business, We Move, which is now a highly successful company.
2: I feel like in business you see so many quotes and stuff and you'll see them you know, uh, you know, know, on LinkedIn and stuff. It's like, never use the word failure. And I'm like, I want no problem with using the word failure. Um, failure doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's
0: a, it's a negative connotation we attach as it to. As long as we like, learn from it. It's like anything in life, isn't it? It's things don't go to plan personally or in business or whatever you do. Yeah. As long as you learn from that experience.
2: Exactly, that, that is a key point, right? It's like, okay, and if I met failure, people go, yeah, but you didn't fail. And I'm like, yeah, but I did because I didn't make any money and it wasn't a sustainable business. So that's, you know, by definition, you could, you could say failure. But as I said, I don't see the failure in any way as a bad thing now. I look back on it and go, yeah, I, I did learn. And I saw my parents late in evening and I went in and I said... I'm going to start a man and van. I said just on the side, but that is going to pay my bills whilst I build traveling Nan. Okay, and they went, "Oh, Adam, yeah, okay, whatever, whatever, and, Adam." Yeah. yeah <laughs> and I, and I, as, a, as a child, I think I was very much like that. You know, I'm going to build a rocket and go to the moon, and 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 they, okay, like right, yeah, and and about it must have been less than two weeks later. I remember going up to Southampton, uh, you know, with my dad there, and 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 we we bought a little van. Um, but you know, funnily, it was. It was only ever a side project. So the idea of a man and van, you know, I'd done some basic research and thought, okay, there's no entry level. There's no accreditation needed. You can just buy a van and be a man of van. Part of the problem that, you know, affects my bottom line now owning a sort of removal company. Not that there's loads of difference, but yeah. you know, that no entry level. But anyway, I was like, this should be quite simple. So, so I went out. And, and bought a little van and my brother had had some experience in removals okay. so I was like okay great well you can come in you know he was sort of like in between jobs so like this you know, this could work um, we can pick and choose when we do the jobs I can spend all my spare time working on travel Learn and build this you know like yeah. fan, fan, fantastic business um, so that that's really where it all started okay. that transition so you know really by chance some would say if I'd not heard that conversation you know it, it might never have materialised I remember in the first few months, you were rocking up, and you know, and they would probably they would sort of snigger at you, and you know, because you'd be the man of the van, and they would be in their slightly bigger truck, and with a logo on, whereas ours was just plain. And but I but I began to see them because they were sniggering at me, but I was kind of like, hey, this is a sideline project, and actually, like, how rubbish is that van? It's old, you know. The staff are overweight, um, you know. They're not they're not protecting the customers' carpets, and we weren't doing these things because we were just a man of van. But I was starting to see actually the the problems that you know, that people might have finding a removal company that they could consider professional. Um, and it was only at that point, say a year in, where that was almost like data collecting, but, you know, subconsciously, because I wasn't thinking that I was
0: ever going to make anything of it. So you found a passion for the removal industry?
2: Yeah, I think I have. You know, it, like, I, I think now, you know, if I combine it with the time for Man and Van, it's sort of five years in. Um, do I think I'll be in removals forever? No. Like, you know, I'm not that passionate about it. I think, you know, I'm passionate about business and, and removals give me the great vehicle to do that. I saw it as a industry that is old fashioned, outdated. You know, there was almost this stigma attached to it of, you know, a beat out old transit van with a couple of, like, beer belly men that are going to, you know, show up and lug your furniture around. And, and I felt like I could create something different um and i feel like i have you know we've 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 certainly grown to a point which i'm sort of happy with now um so i I certainly have a passion for it in that it's been my first almost like relative success but i certainly don't you know you know i I don't see myself like you know being in removals till i retire how do you define success god um I feel like I think it was, you know, all of the, the podcasts and I've listened to them all and they all kind of had a similar, you know, take on this and it was interesting. I think very similar to mine. Like I don't think um I think you'd be the exception, not the rule, if you built a really successful business to have money. And by that I mean if your aim is to I need to start a really successful business to have a Ferrari or to have a big house. I feel like if that's a primary driver, then, you know, it's going to be a real struggle. I'm not saying it's not achievable, but I feel, you know, personally like that can't ever be the driver. It's never been the driver for me, you know, um, you know, I have sort of like, you know, ambitions to build something much bigger, say than we move, but it's not about building something bigger so I can, you know, buy a bigger house or have a nicer car or go on nicer holidays. It's not the the driver. So I, when I talk about sort of personal success, I think it's contentment. Uh, you know I do a lot of work alongside you know the business work on personal and self-development
0: so now we enter the realms of the top three those acclaimed spots and heading up that top three at number three is Mark Cripp, founder and managing director of Urban Guild a group of acclaimed hospitality venues and a hotel in Bournemouth I've known Mark since 2004 When he first showed me round a dilapidated hotel in the middle of Boscombe that he was going to turn into and did successfully do so a boutique, hotel, bar and restaurant that has been a great success. When I met him, I wondered whether he was insane and mad and I'm not sure I still know the answer to that question to this day. Mark is really passionate about his business and therefore inevitably was a great first guest on the Evolve to Succeed podcast. As I say, Mark is very passionate about all things hospitality and even hosts his own popular podcast called The Humans of Hospitality. Go give it a listen. His journey began when he left home at 21 and spent two years backpacking around Asia, Australia and the Caribbean. During this time, he not only developed a love of food, but also a deep love of people, those strangers in remote villages who invited him in their homes to share their meals and their stories. He has carried this same ideal of warmth and the human touch into all of his businesses and is determined to keep the sector of hospitality free from that certain cold corporate mindset and branding we see in so many of the franchises today. As you'll hear, Mark also has an infectious enthusiasm for entrepreneurship, especially the idea of turning a dream into a reality and seeing it flourish. And was there a moment in those early years when you absolutely felt that you were on track, this was it, this is what it was all about, or was it just hard graft?
3: No, it was just graft. I think I, I got a bit of confidence to at least realise we were going to smash what we told the bank we were going to do, because I think we did it in year one, certainly year two. Um, so I think year one, I think we did about 180 grand in year one, which was which was triple what we were turning over when we bought it uh and then we did just over 500k in year two and then a million in year three so the speed of growth was really fast yeah so but i don't think i was there thinking oh here we go i'm gonna be a millionaire you know all my dreams come true i was just grafting uh but i was enjoying it in that sort of sick crazy overworked way that entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. do in the early years biggest thing for me that entrepreneurs do is they create things that don't exist and that doesn't mean you know bars and restaurants and hotels have existed for a long time but but your own kind of style your own niche your own sort of way of doing it and and that's that's a privilege i think to to have that freedom and that opportunity to to bring something into the world Mm. from your imagination is amazing it's like a kid filling in a coloring in a you know a drawing or something like that
0: and i think that's true isn't i think that whatever your sector whatever you do that entrepreneurism it's about the creativity and Massive. putting that creativity into it and being disruptive or doing something different or yeah. excluding that passion in what you do yeah. and creating a
3: business from it. Yeah, again, I think looking back, without a doubt, creativity is key. Uh, probably the reason that I could never have gone off and just worked in the city is I would have missed that. Definitely the bit I love now, you know entrepreneurs we have that shiny new toy syndrome and that's the bit i love you know the creating the next thing i'm less fussed once the restaurant opens whether we're going to run out of toilet roll or teaspoons doesn't excite me in the same way as to yeah what it's going to look like and how people will feel when they're in there and the brand and the excitement of opening and that's not necessarily a good thing it's just the reality and over the years you kind of realize that's your strength urban reef is probably the one that takes me back to those childhood memories of travel the most and when i stand in the sea still now to be fair but if i stand in the sea having a little paddle and i look back at the building in the height of the season and there might be a live band playing outside and there'll be people queuing for the takeaway next door and the balcony will have 150 people on it and there might be 200 people downstairs and and it's turning over i don't know you know a couple of thousand pounds an hour without a doubt I've got this huge grin on my face not because of the money but just because you go that place with that energy and that buzz and that vibe only exists because I built it I think ideas happen in the gaps. So it's really important to create gaps. So I think we're we're all guilty of constantly doing, constantly doing, thinking, oh, I'll get my ideas by going on the internet and doing some research or I'll I'll go to a bar. But actually I think, you know, leave yourself space sometimes. So sometimes I'll be in a heavy research mode and I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of audiobooks and a lot of inspiration to get fired up. But sometimes I'll deliberately just yeah, have have nothing, and uh, and dog walks or long bike rides, as you know, yeah. um, you know, you go and climb a mountain for two hours on a bike, and and all you can focus on is breathing and pedalling, your mind drifts off. Straight away, I could I could feel that that kind of energy and buzz through my veins where I went. Holy shit, this should be a restaurant. This is like yeah. right in the heart yeah. of the town center in the same way that Urban Reef overlooks the ocean and I think it's one of the best views in town. This is probably the second best view in town. And I just knew it. I probably knew it within 3 or 4 minutes that we were going to start a trajectory that would mean this would turn into a restaurant. It. And it's a bit of a curse because I could see it. I don't look at those terraces even within 10 minutes. I looked at the terraces and I saw people sitting down, clinking glasses of of wine and, you know, prosecco. I saw the festoon lights, I can hear the music, the laughter. And it's not about money, it's about it really still, it's definitely not about money because then I would have run away. It's about kind of seeing that vision in your head and going, there could be 200 people out here spending you know, an anniversary together or some time together or hanging out with their spouses or their partners or a business meeting, and you can feel it. You can feel that energy and you can see it in your head. And then you go, shit, I'm one of the lucky buggers who could actually create that because I know how to do it. So
0: coming in at number two is Richard Carr, a serial entrepreneur and current chief executive of Fortitudo Property Developers in Poole. To many listening to this podcast, Richard needed no introduction. Since his early 20s, he's been an active, colorful, and at times controversial individual, especially in the Poole and Bournemouth area. He has, however, run several multi-million pound companies in a variety of different sectors from bowling, leisure, and nightlife to commercial and residential property development. He's been ousted from the business he publicly floated, and in 2012 he was arrested and subjected to a lengthy court case. He is someone who has won and lost on a grand scale, and his resolute and somewhat unapologetic nature have turned him into a very divisive figure. But it's also these traits that have been key to his success. Love him or loathe him, the fact that this was our second most listened to episode is proof that people are always curious about bold and uncompromising individuals like Richard and ultimately want to know the truth about them as individuals. This is what I try to achieve through our conversation by not shying away from some of the bigger questions while also getting to understand where he came from and knowing the man in a little bit more detail, where he might have got things wrong and where he might have got things right. In the end, it's a story of unrelenting ambition, dogged determination, and the pleasures and pitfalls of wild success. Entrepreneurial characters, we like control, don't we? Yes. Fundamentally, that's usually one of the drivers behind why we start. Well, I think
4: this. I think I think that uh, entrepreneurs, generally successful entrepreneurs, it's interesting, isn't it? If you look at, uh, there's this th- theory about the amount of dyslexic people. Mm who have been successful entrepreneurs. Formal well, education doesn't lead to necessarily success exactly. in business. And I, 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 I'm I, dyslexic and went to dyslexic school. And um, I think that, that entrepreneurial people are pretty narcissistic as well, generally, if the truth be known. And um, I think that that's what makes an entrepreneur is that we are actually control free. On the 21st of November, 2012, yeah. and I remember that date so well, because it's my ex-wife's birthday, they, well, they came to the front door of my house at seven o'clock in the morning. They came to Jim Beedham, who was my uh, sort of a guy I was doing work with uh, at that time. They went to Paula, my ex-wife's house, to everyone that I had a, a business involvement with, got arrested all in one go. I remember being in the cell on that day thinking, why, what is going on? Anyway, they came to the house that morning. They searched the house and it was, it was laughable. There must have been eight or 10 policemen. At the time, I just had my baby boy, Zane. He was only three months old. And I was sat on the sofa with Chantel and um, they're all searching the house. And I said to this policeman, who I sort of knew this guy, so what are you doing? He said, well, we're looking for um, money. I went, well, you're not going to find any money. I said, there's some money in the bottle around the corner. <laughs> I've got a one-gallon whiskey bottle. He said, well, no, we're looking We're looking for substantial sums of cash. And I went, well, you've <laughs> I'm going to assure you you're not going to find it. Anyway, ahead. they took the house to pieces, took that house to pieces, and they didn't find a penny. As a dyslexic child, um, and I think this is why a lot of entrepreneurs who are dyslexic do so well, because through your childhood, you are persecuted, but not so much these days, I think, yeah. but if you go back to the 60s and 70s, you're a dyslexic child. You're a little bit persecuted at school. Yeah. You're... Well, when I when I first got analysed as, as somebody with dyslexia, dyslexia I wasn't even known about. This was in the sixties when wow. I, I got expelled from Castle Court School, and my mother took me to see a specialist. And the specialist said, "Oh, your child's a dunce." My mother said, "No, he's not." I said, "He he could do the alphabet before any other child. He could spell before any other child in his class. So that's just rubbish." Hmm. Um, but in those days, in the sixties, this is what be sixty six, yeah. sixty seven. Yeah, they didn't Just even didn't think about. did like normality. Exactly. You, were you, you either had it or you didn't have it. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that that drive comes from um, wanting to prove yourself.
0: But in hindsight, do you, do you look back on it and what lessons did you? Oh, I mean, learn from I, I, the if, I, if I had my life
4: again, yeah, would I be ever have been involved in nightclubs? No. Would I have ever been involved in bars? No. Would I have been involved in temping bowling? Yes. I think that um, if I was to rerun my life, uh, Allied Leisure would never have been involved in nightclubs. I mean, to be frank with you, it's the biggest pain in the ass business you could possibly ever be involved in. I mean, you're dealing with infidelity, drunk people, drugs, friends who got kicked out of your club, you, you're in a no-win situation. And every single week, I used to dread coming to work on a Monday morning because it would be, oh, I'd get, you know, my PA would come to me. Oh, I've had the manager of such and such a club come forward. Uh, a friend of yours came to the front door. He was drunk. He wasn't allowed in. And he said to them, they're all going to be fucking fired. I know Richard Carr, et etc, et <laughs> And, you know, like, it's the most awful business. Do you uh, think you, needed, you ended up creating a persona, though? Because of that nightclub yes, business, absolutely. Because if you, even if you look at TV today, okay, whenever there's a criminal, let's say there's a gangster film mm. or a gangster show or um, drug barons, what's the one business that they all own? Nightclub. And so it is. Here we get to that number one spot. He's a successful
0: author, expert on time management, and a master of growth and the keys to achieving true happiness. He's someone I've known for more than 20 years and whose contagious energy and enthusiasm for life marks him out as a special and engaging individual. The man I'm referring to is Chris Croft, one of the UK's leading business coaches who to date has trained some 87,000 people face-to-face and an astonishing 6 million people online. Chris has a gift for really bringing conversations alive, especially when they're around good management, purpose, goals and achieving meaningful success. And therefore, I think it's really fitting that he takes our number one spot in 2020. Not only because he's such a likable individual, but because of so much of what he talks about really resonates with Evolve's core mission and values, which is pursuing your true purpose and defining what good looks like for you, both from a personal and professional perspective. Chris is a great storyteller mixing profound insights with both humour and humility. I really enjoyed this conversation, and apparently you, the listener, did so too.
5: I started out as an engineer. I did a d- degree in engineering at Cambridge, which was um, good. Carol Vorderman was my lab partner. Okay. We were all in love with Carol. Wow. I don't think she'd remember me, but <laughs> I remember her. Um, but apart from Carol, I, I didn't really enjoy engineering. I was a terrible engineer. I mean, engineers are very good at detail and yeah. I just I, I only did it because I happened to be good at maths and couldn't think of what else to do and I think at that age you're just thinking what on earth shall I do as my career
4: yeah
5: and so I picked it and then went to work for Westland Helicopters because helicopters are kind of fun and interesting yeah. things and I was an apprentice there and I worked in all the different departments and had this increasing sense of desperation as I didn't fall in love with each department. It was going to be
0: a department. The next one I'm going to love. Yeah. And I one just one thought it has got to
5: be it. something. Um, I mean, helicopters are brilliant and beautiful, but the design office, my plan was to design helicopters. And I thought, in the first week, I'll do a normal one, get my eye in. in the <laughs> second week, I'll do a double-decker. You know, third week, I'll do one shaped like a fish or something. <laughs> and I discovered that they do, they make one new helicopter design every 10 years, and it takes 300 people 10 years. Wow. And if you're lucky, by the time you get to the third one, you might be in charge of, you know, the back wheel or something. Right. And I, I just thought, sod that. And I do actually believe that there is an ideal job out there for everyone. And you've got to keep trying to find it. Only one? Um, I don't know if there's only one ideal job. And I don't know if there is a job for absolutely everyone. But I think for a lot of people, there's at least a better job than the one they're doing. Something that they feel passionate about yeah, and engaged and, with. And, and yeah. I think there are, I, because the job I do now, where I go around and do training courses and I see probably 3,000 people a year, I see a lot of people who... And, and they open up to me on courses and they tell me stuff, you know, and you get a lot of people who they don't hate their job. I mean, some people hate their job and do nothing about it. But a lot of people just settle for a job that's sort of OK because they have to pay the bills. And they just and I just think you're spending five days a week doing a job and you've got to find a job that you love. You know, we're into do the good guys win or the bad guys win, don't we? And I've been teaching good management, yeah. I hope, for years now. But I do see quite a lot of bad managers still, you know, people who use fear yeah. and things. And so I
0: think there is that uh, corporate mentality. You know, it's one of the reasons I left and set up in Spiral. So I wanted to treat my people how I'd want to be treated. Yeah, and but you're treat unusual, them fairly, aren't you? And instead of being dictated to. So I think there is some truth. Yeah, there is definitely some truth in what you say, Chris. Because yeah. there is that dictation of how you'll deal with your people and how things will be dealt with and how you'll recruit people and for me I always had that passion I wanted to get out and and do it my way and treat people as human beings
5: I think good managers can succeed but I also think bad managers can succeed but I also think maybe in the long run you You've got to have creativity and you can't do it all yourself. You've got to get it from your people. And therefore, they've got to believe in what they're doing. So if you force people to work, it's all right if they're doing a routine task, like turning a handle on a machine. But if you want creativity, you've got to inspire your people, haven't you? (music) I read somewhere that the average company, only, the average manager gets half a day of training a year on average. And, And that's probably about right. You know, they go on a training course every couple of years. Yeah. Which You've got to is develop your people. You've got to believe your people. You've got to develop them. You've got
0: to make them better people.
5: Yeah, yeah. You know? And so training's regarded as a sort of optional extra, just a little corner yeah. of life. And and I sort of joke that I just live off the crumbs from the big table, really, because training budgets are just tiny. Yeah. And yet it is incredibly important. And and most people don't even really think about it. They, they just think, Oh, I probably should do some training. I'll get a guy in. Mm-hmm. And and they don't really Focus on it when really they should. One of my favourite statistics, I don't know if I stole it or made it up, but if you can save one hour a week by delegating a bit more, yeah. then, or, or doing anything, actually saying no or whatever, if you can save an hour a week, that saves you, let's say, 50 hours a year. So let's call that a whole working week. Yeah. A bit more than a working week, probably, I hope.
0: Yeah. So,
5: <laughs> So that's... You could save a week. And, and if you've got, let's say you've got 10 people who work for you and you give them each one more hour a week, which they won't even notice. Yeah. And they'll probably be pleased to be given. Yeah. Oh, at last, he's letting me do yeah, it. It's empowerment. Yeah, you know. Then um, you can save 10 hours a week. You could save 10 weeks a year. So, and this is not 10 crap weeks that are full of meetings and interruptions no. and emails. This is 10 weeks of pure empty time. Yeah. You know, imagine if you could have the whole of January, the whole of February and half of March just off. Free. Productive. I mean, I'd go on holiday for January, just take a month's <laughs> skiing or something. But you could still have all of February and all of March, half of March, just to think. Yeah. And come up with ideas and improve things and motivate your workforce and, you know, just so many things you could do. Yeah. and it's simply an hour and, a week. And that's, a, yeah, it's huge. You've got to have really clear goals for the company and yourself. And that is a difficult question. It's, it's the one thing I can't tell you the answer to. What are your goals? No. The answer is, I don't know. You've got to decide. Individual to every yeah.
0: individual and every business is different as I, well. I can tell me? you
5: what some of mine are, but mine will be totally different to yours. Yeah. Um, so, because um, I like eating curry and playing the saxophone and running my fingers through the luxuriant fur of my dog. Right. But that's not everybody's idea of fun. you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I told you Chris is a great storyteller. And to wrap up this episode, indeed, our top 10 of 2020, I wanted to share this final tale from Chris about what he believes is one of the key to success and happiness. It's a little story that's just six minutes long, but it is really wonderful and I couldn't help share it in full.
5: I have noticed that happiness comes from coming out of my comfort zone, and in fact, I've got one more brilliant example I've got to tell you about because it goes back to me being stupid. Really, I some friends of mine said, "Would you like to come trekking in the Himalayas?" And I just thought, "Yeah, I quite fancy a nice walk," and <laughs> thinking we'll... it's a yeah, <laughs> and beacon. Yeah, I thought, "We'll, you know, I'll buy some nice walking boots, and uh, it'll be fine, and we'll look at lovely monasteries and monks yeah. chanting, and you know, it'd be really cool, wouldn't it?" So I said yes to this, and my friend steve was organizing it and his wife rita was going And i thought if rita can do it i can do it you know i thought to myself because uh, steve's a bit of a crazy guy but rita's very sensible so i thought it's going to be fine yeah um and so and my wife liked the idea of it so we said yes and then they said right there's a briefing um with the travel agent i went do we need a briefing and I thought, all right then so we went to this briefing and the guy said um here's an equipment list, a kit list. And it had things like a five-season sleeping bag. I'm thinking, well, what's that? There's only four seasons. But a five-sleep season is I'm really warm. Yeah. It takes you down to, like, minus 50. And I'm thinking, what? And then they kept mentioning, you know, when we get to EBC, you'll need this and that. And I said, excuse me, what's EBC? And they went, well, Everest Base Camp, obviously. And I went, <laughs> hang on a minute. We're not going there, are we? Yeah, 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 we're going there. And... And I sort of thought, well, it's only base camp, so it's, maybe that's all right, you know. <laughs> but Everest Base Camp is higher than the top of Kilimanjaro. Yeah. And – but anyway, I sort of said I'd do it, so I just thought, You're right. You're committed. Yeah. yeah. So, again, I'm taken out of my comfort zone by utter stupidity, really. And so we did this trek, and sure enough, it was complete hell. Yeah. You know, so it was – it was so cold at night, you had to sleep with your camera – in your sleeping bag, because otherwise the batteries would go flat. So you had all this stuff clanking around in your sleeping bag. Uh, And in fact, you had to, you slept with a bottle of wee with you to keep you warm. But in the morning, when you wake up, you've got this cold bottle of wee. Mm. I mean, it was really crazy stuff um and i twisted my ankle stupidly and so that didn't help so i was like bandaged but i carried on because that's the sort of guy i <laughs> am and um and we made it we go all the way to everest space camp and all the way back and it was an incredible achievement and i was thinking about i mean it, i was well out of my comfort zone but i was thinking about did it make me happy because every night as we crawled into our tent totally exhausted <laughs> and freezing cold and by the way i went from um blowing my nose to just snorting it out, oh. to just to just letting it run down my face, you know. And I went from getting changed into, um, into pyjamas um, to um, just sleeping in my underwear, to sleeping fully clothed. Yeah. You know, by the end, I was so exhausted. By the end, I just didn't care. Yeah. And I was just filthy, unshaven, smelly. I just didn't care. You know, it was literally that. I was almost just hardly surviving, you know. And you go off your food at altitude. Food tastes horrible. And you've got the runs. There's no toilets. You have to go behind a boulder. You know, I can't tell you. That's but I mean, sort of stuff that Lloyd does every day. <laughs> but, but, you know, to me, it was just like, well, too much of my zone. And every night I used to think, for the same money, I could be lying on a beach in the Maldives with, you know, with, a, with a, somebody feeding me grapes while I lie there. You know, I, I, what yeah. am I doing? <laughs> and so I would say there was a big downward peak of of, you know, a peak of unhappiness while I was doing it. But you did get an amazing feeling of achievement. And it was fantastic to see Mount Everest and to look up and to think, you know, there's another two kilometres vertically. How can anybody climb that? And it was amazing to have, and the mountains were spectacularly beautiful in the evening, the sun lights them up and they all turn like a golden color and you're down in the valley and it is and there were some amazing things that we saw and did and i'm so glad i did it now yeah so it's like if you can imagine a graph where there's a big downwards peak at the time but then there's residual happiness you get forever afterwards looking back thinking wow what a great trip that was whereas if you never go out of your comfort zone, you don't get that, you don't get that residual happiness. Residual happiness. i love that. Yeah, and i um, I bet everyone can think about trips they've been yeah. on, walks, cycle trips, where maybe it tipped down with rain or whatever. And at the time you were probably a bit cold and unhappy. Yeah. But you look back thinking, God, oh, that was epic. Do you remember that yeah. was hilarious? Do you remember that time when we fell in the river by mistake or couldn't get the car started and we had to sleep? And you know, and and but you look back and you think, wasn't that great? Yeah. And so It creates memories as well. As
0: human beings,
5: we need those. So you grow as well, of course. But the main thing is, you're right, coming out of your comfort zone creates all those memories which add to your, your, uh, apparently there's two types of happiness. So there's, um, there's what's called hedonistic happiness, which is happiness you just get at the time. Short term. It's Eating there, that it's curry. Instant fix. Um, yeah. yeah. And so hedonistic happiness was pretty much negative on the Everest trek. <laughs> yeah, um, imagine. But then you've got what's called eudaimonic happiness. Eudaimonia, which is Greek for happiness, apparently. And that, your eudaimonic happiness, is your sort of life satisfaction of looking back, thinking, I did that, and I'm glad I did that, because it was great. Wow. So things like achievement do add to your your residual happiness, your eudaimonic happiness. And the game is to try to do both. But hedonistic happiness often leads to less happiness later. Yeah. Usually Uh, has a consequence. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) a consequence of some sort. Yeah. Everything from, you know, having an affair to just drinking too much or whatever. So there's a weird sort of thing where, You you have to suffer to have happiness later, or if you go for a lot of temporary happiness, it maybe makes you less happy later. Yeah. So, you know, the game is to try to get enough of both. Try to, you know, enjoy. With life in balance. Now that's a challenge. It (laughs) is a real challenge, yeah, absolutely. So coming out of your comfort zone is one of the sources of happiness.
0: So there you have it, the top ten is complete. And I think that was a great way to end the podcast, that short story from Chris. And indeed to end off what I'm sure has been an incredibly challenging and strange year for everyone in 2020. It really has been great having you along as a listener. And thank you for your support from the bottom of my heart. And my hope is that in 2020, the Evolve to Succeed podcast has in some way entertained, inspired and informed you as well as providing some welcome diversion from the challenges you've inevitably faced both professionally and personally. I look forward to bringing you more inspirational and diverse guests in 2021, and who knows, you might be one of them. But of course, in the meantime, if you want further access to insightful content, events, webinars, and inspiration, and also details of our coaching, peer groups, and co working space and other services, provided by evolve then please do go to evolvemembers.com and you can also register there to be part of the evolve community i really do hope you've enjoyed the episodes of the evolve to succeed podcast in 2020 and if so please do rate review and subscribe to future episodes i look forward to you all joining me again next week in 2021 happy new year